Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being so much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 175, and it's all about smoking, namely tobacco which was brand new in Tudor England, but would go on to have a storied career in England, especially during the later Stuart Restoration period, when smoking was encouraged for children because it was just so gosh darn healthy. But first, a really quick note about TudorCon. So TudorCon is happening this year from October 1st through 3rd in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. As I've said many times before, it's three days of Tudor merriment, learning, friendships, talks, parties, feasts, music. Tickets are officially sold out, but there's a, there's a little trick because we have a few people who are looking to exchange their tickets because they can't come. They'd like to sell them to others who might like to come, but can't get a ticket. So if you would like to come to TudorCon, don't despair that tickets are sold out. You can still come if you let me know. There are four people, I think, who are looking to sell their tickets like that. So you can go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon2021 to get all the details and then email me. There's a link there to get matched up with someone who wants to sell their ticket. There's an email there to get on the wait list. And when you click on that and send me an email, I will match you up with one of the people who is looking to sell their ticket. All right, cool. englandcast.com slash TudorCon2021. October 1st through 3rd, we're like less than two months away. It's going to be so awesome. I can't wait. I want to also tell you about the books of Sarah Kennedy. So Sarah Kennedy writes a series called The Cross and the Crown, and she is one of the generous sponsors of TudorCon. So I just want to tell you about the first book. It is 1535. And in the tumultuous years of Henry VIII's break from Rome, the religious houses of England are being seized by force. 20-year-old Catherine Havens is a foundling and the adopted daughter of the prioress of the Priory of Mount Grace in a small Yorkshire village. Catherine, like her adoptive mother, has a gift for healing, and she is widely sought and admired for her knowledge. However, the king's divorce dashes Catherine's hope for a place at court, and she reluctantly takes the veil. When the Priory's costly altarpiece goes missing, Catherine and her friend Anne Smith find themselves under increased suspicion. Henry VIII's soldiers have not had their fill of destruction, and when they return to Mount Grace to destroy the Priory, 
Catherine must choose between the sacred calling of her past and the man who may represent her country's future. So check out her book, Sarah Kennedy, The Cross and the Crown series on Amazon and all other places to buy books. Okay, deep breath. (laughs) Now, smoking. Don't smoke, kids. Seriously, don't smoke. It's disgusting. So with that disclaimer, let's talk about tobacco. Supposedly, the very first tobacco smoked in Europe was in 1493. After returning on La Nina with Christopher Columbus from the Caribbean, there was a sailor named Rodrigo de Herath who lit up a tobacco pipe in his hometown of Ayamonte in the southwest of Spain in Huelva. Now, his neighbors were left flabbergasted. They had no idea what he was doing. And, of course, they reported him to the Spanish Inquisition. Their chief weapon is surprise. See, you guys, I work Monty Python into like every episode I do. I really should call this the Monty Python with a little bit of Tudor England thrown in. So the Spanish Inquisition, their chief weapon is surprise and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, again, you've got to go to YouTube and type in Monty Python Spanish Inquisition. It's hilarious. Or maybe it's just hilarious to me. I don't know. Either way, it's my podcast and I get to make Monty Python references. So, where was I? His neighbors, flabbergasted, report him to the Spanish Inquisition, thinking that this was some kind of like pagan practice that he had discovered while he was in the New World. He was punished. He was put in prison for up to seven years. The sources vary on whether it was three years or seven. But the point is, poor Rodrigo Jerez went to prison for smoking tobacco. So let's back up a minute. On the 2nd of November, 1492, Christopher Columbus, who was captaining the Santa Maria, accidentally ran into the island of Cuba. He sent two men in a small boat to explore the island. They reported on a strange sight. They saw people with burning sticks in their mouths. When they got back to the ship, they explained this. It was all very strange. But over the next few years, European explorers were exploring and they found that people all over America smoked tobacco. These people believed that chewing or smoking tobacco would protect them from many different diseases. Some European explorers were frightened that they too might catch these local diseases that tobacco supposedly prevented, and so they also began to smoke tobacco. And then they go back home, and they're of course addicted to tobacco, and they take large amounts of it back with them. There was an early chronicler of plants in the Americas. It was a Spanish physician, Nicolas Menardes. And he talked about tobacco in his book where he talked about the medical virtues of tobacco in the treatment of headaches, chest issues, and even worms. Though he also talked about the narcotic effects of smoking or chewing tobacco. Nicotine actually got its name from the German botanist, Leonhard Fuchs, who called it Nicotiana, in honor of Jean Nicole, who was a French ambassador to Portugal. And around 1559, he had sent tobacco seeds to the French queen and other members of the French court. So, hooray for Jean Nicole. About 110 years after the first tobacco was smoked in Europe, it had become such a popular hobby that none other than King James I had to write a book against it. 
one of the most popular discoveries when archaeologists go through Tudor period homes and trash piles are these very small clay pipes that would have been used for smoking the tobaccos. They were about 11 to 12 centimeters long, maybe what, four or five inches. And they were designed to hold the tobacco, which would be lit when it was dried out, and then to draw the smoke into the mouth without burning the mouth of the person who was smoking. So at one end of the pipe is a small bowl, and then there's a hollow stem that goes into the mouth, and that's how you smoke it. The clay pipes were really cheap. They were also really fragile. They would often break because they weren't designed to handle the heat that was generated from the smoking. And so, again, if you dig through Tudor trash in places where there were a lot of different people congregating, so inns or taverns, you're going to find a lot of these broken pipes. But how did tobacco become just so popular? And why on earth did people smoke it in the first place? The most common date given for the arrival of tobacco in England is the 27th of July, 1586, when it is said that Sir Walter Raleigh brought it to England from Virginia. There's actually a legend telling how his servant, seeing him smoking a pipe for the first time, actually threw a bucket of water on him because he thought he was on fire. And while that's a nice, nice story, it's actually much more likely that tobacco had been around in England long before. Tobacco had been being smoked by the Spanish and the Portuguese for many, many years, and sailors would have come in contact with each other. So it's likely that smoking pipes had actually been something British sailors had done way before 1586. And John Hawkins, there's another story that John Hawkins and his crew could have brought it back as early as 1565. He had visited Florida in 1565. And he wrote, the Floridians have a kind of dried herb that they smoke. They say the smoke satisfies their hunger and they can live for four or five days without meat or drink. Another explorer at the same time, Jacques Carrier, wrote, they, Native Americans, grow a certain kind of herb. They make powder of it and put it in a pipe. They set it to light at one end and at the other end suck it so long that they fill their bodies full of smoke till it comes out of their mouth and nostrils. They say it keeps them in good health. So either way, probably John Hawkins is bringing it back from Florida. But when Walter Raleigh arrived back in England in 1586, he did bring with him colonists from Roanoke Island, and they brought with them tobacco and potatoes. And there's several stories of large crowds forming around London to watch people smoking tobacco. And at first, it was actually really comic. People didn't understand why anybody would want to smoke tobacco. I'm with them. Either way, you know, people would stand around and watch them. But Walter Raleigh actually helped change the attitudes towards tobacco. In 1586, he started smoking, and he soon became addicted to it. And because he was a celebrity, and you know, people emulate what celebrities do, so pretty soon people at court were following his example. And then anybody who wanted to be stylish also started smoking too. And it's really funny to note that in that first batch where people brought tobacco and potatoes, the tobacco wound up being seen as being very good for your health, but people were wary of the potatoes. In 1577, there was a fellow called John Frampton who translated 
the work of Nicholas Menardes, his report that he wrote on tobacco. So John Frampton translates it in 1577 and calls it Of the Tobacco and His Great Virtues. And this book recommends its use for the relief of toothache, falling fingernails, worms, halitosis, lockjaw, and even cancer. In 1598, there was a German visitor, Paul Hensner. He visited London and he said, at these spectacles, plays and bear baiting, and everywhere else, the English are constantly smoking the nicotine weed, which in America is called tobacco. Because tobacco had both medical and spiritual aspects, it made it so very popular throughout Europe, and it became known as a holy plant by Edmund Spencer. And even Ben Johnson wrote that it was divine. He wrote, tobacco is divine because it cures, but also because priests deliver it. There was an herbalist called John Gerard, not to be confused with the Catholic priest who escaped from the Tower of London that I talked about in a previous episode. This John Gerard was an herbalist. He wrote a 1,500-page book that he published in 1597 about tobacco, saying that it was very easy to grow, being now planted in the gardens of Europe. It prospereth very well, and cometh from seed in one year to bear both flowers and seed. Tobacco must be sown in the most fruitful ground that may be found, carelessly cast abroad in the sowing, without taking it into the ground or any such pain or industry taken as is requisite in the sowing of other seeds. It's said that in 1600, Walter Raleigh tempted Queen Elizabeth to try smoking. Even Elizabeth was not immune to peer pressure. This was copied by the population as a whole, and it became so popular and so commonplace that it eventually did start to cause some concern. James I was strongly opposed to smoking. He commented, smoking is hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, and dangerous to the lungs. So he decided to tax it. If he couldn't stop it, at least he could make money off of it, right? Elizabeth had imposed only a two pence a pound tax on tobacco. James changed this to six shillings and eight pence. And he also tried to persuade English colonists in America to stop growing tobacco. In 1604, he actually wrote a counterblast to tobacco, in which he said, And in the black, stinking fume thereof, nearest resembling the horrible stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. So, hyperbole much? None other even than the Catholic Church tried to discourage the use of tobacco by declaring its use to be sinful and banning it from holy places. But even before James's paper around 1602, there was a doctor calling himself Philarites, and he published a booklet called Work for Chimney Sweepers or A Warning for Tobacconists. And it was the very first publication in English to talk about the health risks of tobacco use. He talked about how tobacco was becoming so popular no less pleasant than profitable for all sorts to read. As much to say, better be choked with English hemp than poisoned with Indian tobacco. Philarites talks about the history, how it was seen as a medicinal plant. And in 1573, a William Harrison recorded that tobacco is greatly taken up and used in England against colds and other diseases. He also talked about how the medicinal uses of tobacco didn't always involve smoking, but sometimes people would make a poultice of them and apply it externally. And then Polarities confirms that most people now smoke it. At the time, it was called drinking tobacco in a pipe. 
He says, in these our days, many excellent physicians and men of singular learning and practice together with many gentlemen and some of great account do by their daily use and custom in drinking of tobacco, give great credit and authority to the same. He admits that he's disagreeing with many of the writers and doctors of the time who say that tobacco is good, but he wants to follow in the footsteps of Aristotle, who sometimes disagreed with Plato, and also Galen, who sometimes disagreed with Hippocrates. And so he wrote this book to sort of expose what he thinks are the dangers of tobacco. And in the beginning, as the preface, he wrote a very, very long poem, nine verses, took up the first two pages, all about the history of tobacco and why it's not so good. And he says, pity it is that smoking vanity is England's most esteemed courtesy. Brooks stinging nettles and the vilest weeds that English men should love a stranger weed. And then he goes on to talk about the eight reasons why he thinks tobacco is bad. Some of those include number four, for that it withereth and drieth up natural moisture in our bodies, thereby causing sterility and barrenness, in which respect it seemeth an enemy to the continuance and propagation of mankind. Number seven, he says that for that the first author and finder hereof was the devil, and the first practitioners of the same were the devil's priests, and therefore not to be used of us Christians. And number eight, because it is a great augmenter of all sorts of melancholy in our bodies, a humor fit to prepare our bodies to receive the prestigations and hellish illusions and impressions of the devil himself, insomuch that many physicians and learned men do hold this humor to be the very seat of the devil in bodies possessed. Sounds like a horror movie. Despite all of these warnings, of course, the use of tobacco continued to grow. And in 1610, Sir Francis Bacon said that there was a growing amount of people using tobacco, and he admitted that it was a difficult habit to quit. At Jamestown in Virginia in 1609, John Rolfe became the first settler to successfully grow tobacco for commercial use. Before then, the English were buying it from the Native Americans or the Spanish. And then in 1614, the first shipment of tobacco was sent to England from Jamestown. Tobacco made James I rich. He made at least 16,000 pounds a year from the customs duties. And there were over 7,000 tobacco shops in London alone where the tobacco was sold. In 1602, Beaumont's The Metamorphosis of Tobacco referred to tobacco again as divine. Take up these lines, tobacco-like, unto thy brain, and that divinely touched, puff out the smoke again. After this first shipment from Virginia in 1614, one and a half million pounds of tobacco was sent from Virginia to England annually. And this became a pretty serious problem because the colonists in Virginia were growing so much tobacco that they didn't grow other things like, you know, food. And they continued to rely on Native Americans to buy food. So they were growing tobacco, not growing food, buying food. In 1619, James issued a proclamation. He said that inland plantation allowed tobacco to become promiscuous and begun to be taken in every mean village, even among the basest people. So he was telling people not to try to grow tobacco in England. 
And he also further said that he had been advised by experts that the English variety of tobacco was more poisonous than the Virginian. So he wanted to stop people in England from trying to grow tobacco. By the 1620s, if you wanted to import tobacco, you had to invest £7,000 a year for an import license. And tobacco was forbidden to be grown in England other than in gardens for apothecaries and for doctors. There was a botanist called John Goodyear, and he had a garden. He grew tobacco in Hampshire. He had gotten two kinds of tobacco seeds, and he intended to plant great store thereof and was hindered of his purpose by the proclamation settled forth by the authorities. In 1683, around 3 million pounds of Virginian tobacco was sent to England for sale. And by the 1680s, Jamestown was producing 25 million pounds of tobacco per year to export to England. In 1665, of course, there was the Great Plague. And people believed that tobacco smoke would act as a defense against the bad air. And at the height of the plague, smoking a pipe at breakfast was actually compulsory for the schoolboys at Eton College. If you didn't smoke your pipe at breakfast and you went to Eaton, they would actually beat you. So there you are. So I'm going to leave it there for now. There's so many great blog articles and papers. I'll put them all up in the show notes at englandcast.com slash smoking. Also, don't forget englandcast.com slash tutorcon2021, where you can find out more about getting on the wait list for TudorCon, in which case I will then match you with one of the people who wants to sell their tickets. Also, let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 801-6-TESCO, 801-683-9756. Or you can join the new Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds, tutorlearningcircle.com. So before we leave, I have a quick message for the kiddos out there. Kiddos, listen up because I've got a kiddo right here with me. I'm here with Hannah. How old are you, Hannah? Eight. Hannah's eight. She's my daughter. And Hannah's really into fairy tales. Do you like fairy tales? Hannah loves fairy tales. What's your favorite fairy tale? Peter Pan. Peter Pan. What do you like about Peter Pan? It's just that I like flying. You like flying. Yeah. And I like mermaids and pirates. And pirates. Mermaids and pirates. Okay. That is pretty much everything about Peter Pan. Everything about Peter Pan. So Hannah asked me if I could do a podcast episode about Peter Pan. And I said, well, sweetie, I don't really know how we could get Peter Pan linked to Tudor England. But I thought that we could either do it about piracy, mermaids, or what was that? We were going to talk about conceptions of Native Americans. Yeah. So piracy, the way European pirate or the way European early colonists saw Native Americans. Yeah. So you guys can tell us which one you want to hear best: right. mermaids, pirates, or Native Americans. So here's the thing: you get to vote. We want to do an episode just for kids. It's going to be a kiddo episode, special edition. And Hannah's going to help me do it. We're going to record it together. Yes. Yes. And you get to choose. Do you want us to do the episode on either piracy or mermaids, how people saw mermaids and what people thought? And we could expand that to kind of sea monsters in general or sea creatures. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like, but mostly mermaids. Mostly mermaids and like sea creatures and the different sea creatures people believed in and 
evidence for sea creatures and writings about sea creatures, all that kind of cool stuff. So pirates, sea creatures, including mermaids, or the way the people who were the early settlers viewed the people who were already living in the Americas, the Native Americans. Ask your mommy or daddy or your guardian, whoever has the control of the computer, to email englandcast at gmail.com. Write to us and tell us if you want us to do either pirates, mermaids, or how people saw Native Americans. If you're not a kiddo, you can still vote. You just have to email us yourself. You don't have to get your parent or guardian to email us. So email us at englandcast at gmail.com. And also, we'll add up these things, and whichever one you voted the most, we'll do. Yeah, exactly. So we'll add up all of the votes, and whichever one is the highest, we will do. Okay, cool. So thanks, kiddos, for being a part of the next one. I won't say the next one of our future episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you are having a wonderful summer. And I will be back again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Blown on wind, send for maybe sweating. Blown on wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hörte Bord in Bauerbrick, hat soli semis on sich. Mensch, cool, meiden of nicht, fern freight of thunder. In all this war, flesh of one, wurde the blood and the bond, never yet in us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.